Hey everybody and welcome to the Sunny 16 podcast. Uh, my name is Aid, and I will be one of your hosts for this evening. Uh, I am very pleased to be joined by Claire. How are you doing Claire? Evening Aid. I'm very well thank you and uh, always lovely to be here. Well I'm glad to hear it um uh it's been a it's been a strange week for me i've been vaccinated i've been to the beach it's been snowing um but you know <laughs> hey what can i say it's this we've had all the weather in the last few days all the, uh, and yeah. uh and we'll just keep and we'll just uh enjoy it i guess it's nice to get out and about it's a little bit opening up a little bit here in in uh, england at the moment anyway um it's not just us is it of course because uh well actually i tell you what i let you do the honors because you've 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 been the one that's uh, been organizing our super special guest for this evening haven't you yes i sure have um well it might be um snowy here in uh, in wales and and england but um all the way from sunny california um, we have Michael Kirchhoff who's joining us and Michael is um, the editor-in-chief of Analog Forever magazine. Um, he also is an editor for Catalyst um, and writes for Traverse and Michael also um, is a wonderful photographer as well with an amazing body of work, a diverse body of work um, using many different cameras and, and films as well. So. Thank you for joining us, Michael, to talk to us about about your work and your many, many, many projects. Yes, thank you for having me. I'm honoured to be here. Yeah, it's great to talk to you. It's great to talk to you. Great to meet you. And um, uh, we we got a lot of ground to cover. You you're you're, you're somewhat prolific, which is a is a fantastic <laughs> fantastic thing from our point of view because there's plenty to talk about. Um, and uh, yeah, we so so much so in fact that uh, we we we've decided uh, together to to focus on a, a a subset of your work rather than try and cover it all in in one go. But that that's all good. So I'm looking forward to a, a conversation uh, about the, there's so much stuff here actually in a. Uh, uh, the, the 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 things we've been looking at to prepare for this conversation um there's there's travel there's photography there's writing there's editing there's there's any, any number of interesting things um uh, claire where sh where should we dive in i think we we're going to begin aren't we um hearing maybe about the body of work um which is um is on your website and we'll be showing some um photographs of, as we go along um um, the Enduring Grace project. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Which is, am I right, based around your your travels um, in Russia? Uh, that's correct. Um, well, An Enduring Grace started. Uh, it was born out of my fascination for Russia that I developed uh, when I was a child. Actually, um, I would say. As an American growing up uh, in the 80s, and especially during the uh, Reagan administration, mm. uh, Russia was, you know, they were they were kind of the, the foe of the United States, right? I mean, there was a, yeah. they were the U.S. It was in Russia, it was the USSR at the time. Um, and I, my fascination grew because of the, dialogue and the language that was being used um, during political discussions and newscasts, um, news reports, both in and around the uh, USSR, because mm -hmm. obviously it was made up of Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, uh, Baltic states. So 
uh, and on and on. So there was there was a lot going on. And as a kid, I was really kind of confused by it all. Mm. Uh, uh, but then any of the imagery that I ever saw, um, usually the very first image that I would see would be that of Red Square and or uh, St. Basil's Cathedral. Yeah. So uh, and as a kid who grew up in Los Angeles and went to places like Disneyland, um, whimsical looking structures like St. Basil's Cathedral were really fascinating to me. Um, so to listen to all this negative dialogue about the USSR then, and then see images of uh, this architecture that was just incredible to me. It just, it was really difficult difficult to correlate the two together. Like if these people were so horrible, how could, how could somebody so terrible create structures like this? Mm. And I mean, it went beyond St. Basil's Cathedral, of course, but I, I, I use that as an illustration because most people know what that looks like, what yeah. that is, and uh, understand that whimsical nature that I'm talking about. So um, I basically just grew up that way. And as I, as I got older and um, uh, the fall of the uh, USSR came about and um, Russia became Russia again and Ukraine became Ukraine again and the Baltic states you know, uh, mm. regain their identity, um, as well as all of the other countries that were involved. Um, my interest continued to grow, and I just decided at one point. I mean, it wasn't until two thousand. When did I start? Two thousand seven is when this, when I decided to go there, and um, I didn't actually intend to go there with the thinking that I was going to be creating a series at all. Um, I went there because I was curious, and I went. And when I went there, I simply took photographs, and I, I, just responded to the landscape and the architecture, and the travels that I made through throughout Russia. Um, and I visited three places during 2007 on the very first trip. And I actually started in uh, Kiev, Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Uh, that was the first destination. From there, I traveled to Moscow, and then I ended in St. Petersburg. Um, and when I arrived, they were all incredible. But when I ra- arrived in St. Petersburg, by that time, I had I was really I mean I showed I, I showed up being fascinated, and after being in those three cities and spending them just those, not even that much time, I was only there for a couple of weeks, mm. and I. I was, you know, overwhelmed by it all, and I was really pleased with the pictures that I had been taking. Um, of course, I took film cameras. Yeah. Uh, in fact, yep. I actually took way, more, <laughs> took way more than I should have, um, which is a problem that I have all of the time when I'm traveling. Um, <laughs> but I actually took a full digital uh, Canon outfit with, you know, a couple of bodies and three or three or four lenses. But then I had, you know, three or four film cameras as well with me. So I had a large backpack that was just beyond heavy. So uh, it, it made, you know, traveling a little bit difficult. But I had a, I had a brilliant time. Um, and I decided that on my flight back from St. Petersburg, mm-hmm. back to Los Angeles, I decided on that flight that I, I need to return and I need to explore 
explore more of what it was that I was doing while I was there because I felt like I, I felt like I had started something kind of significant for myself. Um, I didn't know how other people were going to respond to it at all, but um, I just I I thought I'll I'll be back, and I actually you know I went back in two thousand eight. Uh, I went back twice in 2009, 2010, 2013, and 2016 um, in order to continue photographing. So every time I would go, I would, you know, I would be very pleased at what I found, but then I would turn around and discover more places that I wanted to go. Um, and even one of the one of the times uh, I had realized that the Trans-Siberian Railway was. Uh, was a great train route to to take as kind of an adventure yeah, and yeah. when i first started photographing in russia i thought oh that would be really a great thing to do but i'll probably you know i'm probably never going to get around to doing something like that and for some reason in 2009 i just said you know what screw it i'm just gonna <laughs> i'm just gonna go i'm just gonna figure it out and go <laughs> um and it wasn't you know you have to plan everything out ahead of time so I actually traveled the original route from Moscow to Vladivostok on the Pacific coast uh, via train. And then I made that, that trip was a little over three weeks. Um, and I would stop at various cities along the way and make photographs um, with so whatever, something I mean, with their, whatever time I had. So. Yeah, it was great. And I recommend it. Um, uh, I like all of the travels that I did there. I did them. I did it alone. Um, mm -hmm. I would recommend taking somebody with you. Um, it's always nice to have a second pair of eyes, kind of, you know, watching where you're going, watching what you're doing. Because um, there were things I discovered on, especially on that trip, that um, were inherently Russian and, um, you know, difficult, not difficult, but occasionally problematic to deal with. Um, because you know, I never really thought about it going in on the on the the whole project. Mm. But not only do you not do I not speak the language, um, you can't read the language because it's okay. a completely different alphabet. Yeah. It's Cyrillic. Um, so, you know, if, going back to the first trip, I mean, I remember landing in Kiev, getting off the plane, getting into my hotel, and immediately kind of repacking everything I had to head out to start taking pictures mm. and I had my maps all ready to go and I walked out the hotel door and I pulled out my map and I looked at it and then I looked at the street sign and I realized that they didn't match up at all because everything <laughs> there is surrealic. Everything I had was translated into, um, you know, a, the Latin, a Latin alphabet for the most part, you know, so um, I had to develop a, the process of, uh, kind of just knowing which way north, south, east, and west was. Um, mm -hmm. After that trip, I carried a compass everywhere I went. Mm -hmm. And instead of knowing what the names of streets were, I would just count them out on a map. You know, it was five blocks this way or six blocks that way. And um, that didn't always work out either. But um, it made every single trip and every single day an adventure of its own. Mm. Um, and during that time, I, I, I was really responding to the landscape and, again, the architecture, going back to my fascination mm. with St. Basil's. So, um, I, you know, I, I covered all of those places. Um, I, I ended up also going to not just Russia but and Ukraine, but I also went to Belarus. Um, 
uh, I went to Finland because there was a there was a certain amount of influence that Russia had uh, within the borders of Finland uh, that I discovered while I was there. Um, and I also spent time in Estonia and Georgia. Uh, and every single place that I went, things were a little bit different. You know, the architecture changed mm. depending on the geography of where you were and the time. You know, Russia has a very long and storied history uh, since its beginning, and architectural styles changed <laughs> from century to century. So it was interesting to kind of witness that and document that along the way. Um, and again, I the pictures that I was taking, I was doing everything with a with a, a digital camera, Canon digital camera, a Holga film camera, one twenty film camera mm. that I was shooting black and white film in. Uh, and then I also took a Graflex XL camera with me that shot um, Polaroid pack film yeah. uh, called 665 that was positive negative. And those were the images that kind of jumped out at me more than anything. And I kind of put them together in a little, you know, a small group when I got back. And that was the beginning of, the, of it uh, becoming a body of work. So um, I just basically built on it uh, every trip after that. Gosh, there's so much there. I mean, the, the, the whole series, the Enduring Grace series, it does show a lot of the beautiful architecture. And from what you, you know, travel photography um, is something I'm interested in. It's not something I've really, really done. Um, and whether you're taking... Um, architecture if you're taking people because some of your photographs do have people and maybe we'll talk about some of the individual shots in a moment um there's a certain i don't know a certain type of i don't know confidence or way of being to engage with people particularly i suppose if you're not doing like candid shots you're going to literally you see someone you like and you want to maybe ask them to have your take their photo i mean there's one image um i don't know where you took it um, and, the, and there's a gentleman, I don't know, is he, um, he, he outside, he's got a long beard and he's outside a magnificent architectural building. Um, did you, how did you get him to agree to have his photo taken um, with a language barrier? Oh, oh, I know which image you're talking <laughs> so, about. Yeah. And that, was, uh, that was kind of... <laughs> Uh, that was taken on the Trans-Siberian trip, okay. and that that happened on a day where uh, I, I had hired a, a tour guide to kind of get me from point A to point B to some okay. of the places that I knew about, and then there was kind of some extra time, and I said, well, let's, where do people not want to go? And <laughs> um, she took me to... Uh, just this kind of a, a kind of a a promontory point that overlooked the Selenga River um, that flowed between Mongolia and mm. into Siberia, the Siberian part of Russia, because uh, that's essentially where that is is in Siberia, mm. um, southern part. And um, that was a church. The church uh, behind him mm. is not only did he design the church. He built the church. Wow. And he is the he is the priest that presides in the church, 
And across the street from the church, he built a museum that contains artifacts from, uh, I mean, I think he basically said he traveled within a hundred miles of where this, where that church is. And he would collect artifacts, religious artifacts that were uh, in the local area. And they're both in the church and the museum across the street. I didn't go to the museum or photograph it because um, it was basically just kind of a, a box structure. Right. There was nothing uh, interesting or unique about the structure itself. Um, and I only had, yeah, I had limited amount of time, um, but through the guide, I was able to kind of get him to <laughs> try to explain to him what I was doing. And of course, the the positive print, mm -hmm. you know, this, uh, I'm shooting positive negative film. Yeah. So I, you know, I kept the negatives, but I gave him that positive print. I coded it and gave it to him. So I assume it's probably still in that church somewhere. He must have been really thrilled. And yeah, uh he was. He was confused at first <laughs> um, because I was using a camera that he had never seen before. Yeah. But he was, but because of that, he was also uh, probably a little bit more interested and a little bit more engaged. Yeah. Um, you know, and I kind of directed him to look off in the, the distance yeah. uh, so that it wasn't a kind of, you know, I wasn't looking for the eye contact so much as I was just looking for a portrait of the man standing in front of the building that he had he had made himself mm -hmm. that's an incredible story isn't it yeah just yeah you know, that, that underpins all of this stuff and it's um you know and i'm sure you have many many others i have a question if i may about the, mm. the sort of visual style and visual approach that you've taken in this body of work i mean you you said yourself that yeah that it there's very much a focus on architecture which clearly comes through mm. in in the work you're showcasing on on the website um the it, there's a there's a, a fantastic consistency to the the, the fit, some of the visual aspects of it um you know even some some really tangible stuff like you know, a lot of uh low positions for taking the shot yeah. with a view up at the architecture yeah. and you know uh, and that you know it, it for, for me it it it, it sort of it draws the architecture out you know it's far, far more than perhaps you know uh, a tilt shift lens might uh the, the, that's that's fully corrected and and, and stuff like that you know, what drew you to that kind of approach and that and that kind of you know sort of visual aesthetic for architectural work because it's very very different from technical architecture work oh oh absolutely it's not anything like any kind of architecture work <laughs> Uh, although, although I've had uh, a few architects tell me that they love what I've done because it it doesn't follow that kind of the the standard that that they all kind of take when uh, documenting a, a building or a structure of any kind. Mm. Um, I didn't, you know, the aesthetic really kind of solidified during the creation of this process and is pretty much carried through. Mm. almost everything that I've done since. And part of that aesthetic is even though I'm, there's kind of a documentary aspect to, to it. Mm. Um, I have no interest in the reality part of it. Um, mm. If I did, I would have been taking color digital photographs mm. and doing things like using tilt shift lenses and, and correcting perspective and making sure my horizon line was straight but again i like i have no, i had no interest in that doing that at all because again it kind of goes back to my childhood fascination 
And when you're a child, everything is kind of larger than life, especially when it's new. You kind of go in just wide-eyed and in amazement to everything that you come across. Yeah. Uh, and I wanted to kind of mimic that theme or that idea. Um, and that's why the camera that I was using uses a very wide lens. So mm -hmm. I like that kind of cinematic quality to it. Definitely. And when you use a wide lens, you kind of, you have not more limited options, but there's different kind of looks that you're going to get with it. So you're going to get, you know, large expanses of the landscape where like certain buildings will kind of be small in the frame or you're really uptight on a building and with a lot of them that are large, you obviously you're looking kind of straight up at them. So they loom in at you, even though they're kind of falling backwards in the frame, they're looming at you mm. because um, they're very dramatic and um, the, the textures and the tones that I get using that film and the fact that I, I basically kind of screw up the negatives while I'm doing this. I mean, first of all, this film was expired when I started using it in 2007 and it's still film that I use now. So the, the best film that I'm using uh, expired in 2007. Hmm. So, that was the best case scenario. What I'm doing now is the worst, worst case scenario, <laughs> um, but I'm still doing it. And But it, in using that type of film, there was a certain look that I kind of yeah. got because you get a lot of, a lot of accidents, a lot of things that, that um, don't normally happen when you are shooting pack film that's fresh and uh, clear. So, uh, and then also the way that I treat the negatives while I'm while I'm doing that, the way I store them as I'm taking them, mm -hmm. uh, they a lot of the the meandering lines and the textures and around the frame of the photograph. There's that normal Polaroid frame that you'll get with this kind of film, but then there's a lot of extra kind of organic looking uh, meandering lines and forms that occurs more often on the edges than in the center. Um, and that's because of how I treat the film while I'm out there. So uh, all of that kind of bunched together while I was you know, developing the body of work. And I realized how much that I, that was just not just the aesthetic of that body of work, but that is the an aesthetic that um, I carry with me always and everything okay. that I do. So, um, okay. I think it's yeah, those lines are part of it as well. Yeah, I think it's it's, it's a particularly effective for me on some of the Soviet era monuments. Mm. Uh, right. the, the, there's an image uh, of a, a, a large statue with a sword in one hand and a shield in the other, and some soldiers marching yeah underneath it. And even though mm -hmm. technically speaking, I know that that statue is quite small in the frame. For some reason, mm -hmm. that's a low viewpoint, and it's yeah, and the perspective on it really makes it look like it's it's the the, the big feature. So it's quite a magic trick, that actually, isn't it? To make yeah, to make real real life big things look small in the frame, but still <laughs> still come across really big. <laughs> right, and that's what's interesting too about using a wide angle lens like that. I mean, whether you're using film or digital doesn't really matter. Um. But it does often seem like when you're using older vintage lenses that are 
uh, of that kind, uh, you really get something unique out of them that you mm. wouldn't normally get with a with like a modern day normal lens. There's a certain type of there's a little bit of fall off on the sharpness at the edges and the corners, um, and so so things get a little bit soft and dreamy. Um, and that's yeah. that's also carried into like the the images that I take for other bodies of work. Yeah. Um, used with the Holga, so. Um, there's, there's kind of, there are tie-ins to all of the, all of the bodies of work and all of the collections that I do, um, where there's kind of a, a through line as you, as you will, um, for everything that it is that I do. Definitely. Cause I was going to say, I can definitely see it's, it's cinematic and I was going to say it's quite dreamlike as well. And as you say, with your other bodies that we will, we will come to the other images I like from this series is um, you wrote Red Square and the one is it in the Basilica itself where there's like a hands uh, a, a hands I think it's a statue inside and there's a is there a security guard inside the building and there's this lovely light streaming through from the rooftop. The, the, oh right, yeah. That image. Um, yeah, well, Road to, Road to Red Square that mm. particular image. Um, that pretty much is uh, what I would call the signature photograph from the collection. I, it's you know if I was to choose one photograph to represent it, um, that would be the one because it in in a way that's that's what I was thinking of when I was a child when I was imagining what it would be like to be someplace like Red Square when I was a kid. Yeah. That's how it is, you know. I it was. Kind of, it was mysterious. There was a certain kind of dark quality to mm. to the architecture and the landscape. Things yeah. were, you know, maybe not just mysterious but ominous to a certain mm. degree. Um, so there was, a, you know, maybe the, a little bit more frightening as a child. Mm. Um, so I really wanted to convey that. And and in making that photograph, I was actually laying in the center of the street. The, of the cobblestone street that leads into Red Square when I when I took that. So um, uh, thankfully, I was not hit by any vehicles doing that. <laughs> um, but uh, ironically, in order to make that photograph, I was kind of forced into it being that way because on that trip, that was that was the start of the Trans-Siberian trip. So I started it in Moscow, and the day that I arrived, I went to Red Square. And it turns out it was closed. And what they do when they close Red Square is they basically fence, they fence it off. So there's just, you know, meter after meter of high fencing that surrounds every every way to enter there. And of course, I still tried to get in because um, that's kind of what I do. And uh, so I circled the entire area a couple of times looking for a way in um, and it was impossible. So. I wanted to, I still wanted to make a photograph of Red Square uh, during that trip. So that's what I ended up doing. So it kind of, it kept me outside of the the center of, of the area and put me on the outskirts. So mm -hmm. for, you know, on the outside looking in, so to speak. Um, and it ended up being uh, the best decision I ever made. So I was really kind of happy that I was kept out <laughs> at that time. Did you ever have anyone question what you were what you were doing or come up to you, especially with your quite quite old and unusual cameras that you had with you, or, or did that never happen, Michael? 
No, that that happened. Like I said, the the photograph of the priest. He was very he was very interested in what that what I was doing. You know, and even even though that there's a language barrier, everybody mm -hmm. kind of people people gravitate to objects like that, like a vintage camera. Yeah. So uh, language doesn't become uh, the driving force behind the curiosity, right? Mm. It's the visual. And uh, a lot of people can still speak English, well, especially in a, in a city like Moscow, but um, maybe not so well. And uh, like I said, there's some confusion. So um, there were definitely times, you know, one of the, one of the times I was photographing St. Basil's uh, at night, I kind of drew a bit of a crowd while I was doing it. Um, because A, because of the camera that I was doing, and B, because I was having a hell of a time with the film that I was using. Mm -hmm. And um, the failure rate, you know, every year that goes by, the failure rate for this film goes up. Um, and I just happened to have a couple of packs of film with me that were just causing nothing but problems. So I was sitting in front of uh, St. Basil's with a small pile of Polaroid trash in front of me because I was oh. none of them were working. I was just having a hard time. And, you mm. know, I was, I was clearly not happy about it. So people were kind of, well, what are you doing? What, what's mm. wrong? What, you know, what's the problem? And then when I would finally get something that I liked or would just work at all, mm. um, I could just hand them a, a, the positive print and mm. still be able to keep the negative. And I was just handing out, you know, prints, whether they worked or not. Um, and people were really fascinated with, with it because, um, especially there, nobody had any idea what this was that I was doing, mm -hmm. what this film was in any way. Um, so you kind of, you, you make friends along the way. Um, and there's like, you know, we've mentioned before, there's a, there's a kind of community aspect mm -hmm. to, doing this kind of work. Um, so it's really easy to attract people in on that um, by what it is that you're using and how you're using it. Yeah. Uh, and one of the other times is uh, actually when I was leaving uh, Kiev, Ukraine on my way to Moscow, you know, I'm carrying film and I don't want any, anybody uh, x-raying any of it. Absolutely. So mm. I'm, I'm really kind of, you know, paranoid about it. And one of the times that I had, uh, I was leaving, when I was leaving Kiev, I was at the airport, I was trying to go through security and I ran through, I ran my cameras through and I was holding onto the film and begging somebody to hand check the film yeah. and, you know, which is not normally done there. So they, you know, as far as they're concerned, they don't know what film is, especially the film that I'm using. Mm. But my cameras had gone through, and the x-ray technician was looking at the screen, completely confused at what this was. Like, you know, obviously, they need to stop the machine. They need to look in my bag because they have no idea what it is that they're even looking at. Mm. So everything has to stop. They bring my bag back over, and I'm still holding on to my film. And they, they want to look through the bag, and I'm sure, you know, have at it, knock yourself out. And they were asking questions about what it was that I was doing there, yeah. where was I going, and why did I have these cameras, and what were they? And, you know, they're looking at the back of the camera, like, where's the screen that you look at to see the photograph that you made? 
and and I said these are all mechanical. Didn't they use they use film? And they were completely in disbelief at what it was that I was doing. And why would you why would you do that? <laughs> uh, so in the end, they were so you know confused and fascinated, uh, uh, and they just kind of said, "Well, you know what? Just take everything and go. Like that's fine. Take the, <laughs> we don't we don't know what to do with about it. So why don't you just go? So they never even bothered to ask to create a film, um, <laughs> which I all had in lead bags anyway. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, it actually kind of got them to not x-ray the film because they were you know they were interested you know i opened up the cameras i actually took the cameras apart while i was standing mm -hmm. there. and every, uh, every border crossing is different isn't it when you're traveling with films mm. it, every it, yeah. so you, you end up talking to so many different people i remember yeah. one trip a few years ago i was shooting 35 mil and i think my my film went through maybe 12 x-ray machines some of them in parts <laughs> of the world where they really weren't modern equipment um i was I, and i deliberately chosen low speed film I think the highest speed I had with me was something like 250. Uh, and I was, I, it was fine. There wasn't a single trace of any x-ray damage on any of the films when I got them developed. But uh, yeah, after a while, I just think, do you know what? I don't know if I'm going to get any photos out of this trip at all. <laughs> when they go through like the eighth or ninth x-ray machines. Like, <laughs> it's it, true. Yeah. Yeah. With Polaroid, you would get, sometimes there would be, because of the way that the pack film is built, there's the you know the kind of open side of the pack um just that first sheet will often get some kind of you know sometimes there will be lines formed on it um mm. but not always and again it's low speed as well so mm. um you know i i still don't want anybody to x-ray it you know or, or at least at least x-ray it as little as possible because mm. there were times that they would x-ray it that i didn't know x-ray machines were going to be used you know mm -hmm. just walking into some buildings they're going to x-ray your yeah your bag. i had that and it's even just to get into the airport terminal you have to yeah. x-ray it's like hang on a minute there's an x-ray machine just about 10 yards away and then they're going to do it twice yeah then, yeah i've walked i mean i'm in line of sight from where i started off and my stuff's been x-rayed twice <laughs> yeah there's plenty of surprises in that part of the world um yeah. 665 isn't it michael that you're using Yes. Film, which is like gold dust, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Today it is like you have you got a stockpile still? I do. I have um I do have some. Oh. And so for listeners, Michael is showing us some film which you'll be able to watch on the, the YouTube video. Yeah. Um this is a this is a pack that expired in 2007. Oh, this is a good pack. This is one that expired in 2007. <laughs> so yeah, this is to me, this is as good as gold. Yeah. And um strangely, like I'm really picky about the film that I find and, and will actually purchase now because like I was saying about the failure rate, at this point it's really it's getting to the point where it's almost not worth buying it at all anymore. Um, to find a pack of film that works start to finish mm. is kind of rare. Mm. Um, usually something has gone wrong with it, you know, and now you're always buying it on eBay. Yeah. Um, but thankfully, because of friends and because people yeah. or social media uh, and people know that I that I use this film, I'll often get phone calls or emails or text messages about, hey, so I noticed that so-and-so is 
selling some 665 film and it looks like it might be pretty good you might want to check it out and i'll i'll reach out to that person and you know kind of make a determination on whether yeah. or not it's worth buying or not but um like i said i i, I bought i think i think about five packs recently and i paid fifty dollars a pack and that was a bargain um and the only reason that i bought it is because i knew that it had been kept safe um and i knew i didn't know the person but i knew of the person who i bought it from so uh it was i, I felt good about buying it and i've only shot one pack of it and it works fine so. that's that's really good um talking about polaroid film um and, and prices um shooting up um <laughs> I really like, you know, the, the red duochrome film that they had, and I'm hoping yeah. for them again. Um, but I saw some, and there was like a, one pack um, on Amazon for five hundred pounds. I mean, that's like crazy. <laughs> but yeah. a lot of film, um, you know, like you say, if it's if it's expired or it's rare or they don't make it anymore, or or just film in general these days, the prices have gone uh, have seemed to have shot up. But six six five is definitely um, gold dust, isn't it? So. Right. Well, of all of the all of those original Polaroid pack films, six six five was the first one that they abandoned. Um, the Polaroid Corporation deemed six six five to be the most toxic to make and the most problematic to make. It had more more parts to it than any other Polaroid film for some reason. Um, I assume because of the fact that it was a positive negative. Yeah. Um, uh, and not like, uh, I actually, I, I guess type 85 would have been uh, mm. problematic as well. Um, and just, just to clarify, of the positive negative film, there were three that were made. Type 85, which was a pack film um, that went in the Polaroid cameras like swingers. Mm. Um, uh, the Pol the Holga Polaroid backs took that type of film, um, all of those eight series films. And then there was a 665 film that I used, which was also a pack film that mm -hmm. started out with eight sheets, then went to 10 sheets. Um, and then type 55, which was a, a single sheet four by five large format film. Mm -hmm. um, and they were all positive negative, but they were all, they were all made differently, but 665 was considered to be, the problem child of the group so uh, they bailed on that one first and then all of the other ones kind of went by the wayside over the years um and i, and I don't even remember now it was a 2000 i don't remember 2009 i think that they shut down completely before what before a possible project uh showed up and yeah. and started the uh, consumer films again like mm -hmm. sx 70 films. yeah definitely and i actually miss i don't know if you um used any of the impossible um films michael you know when in the early stages um they were quite unstable weren't they and as the stock went on and developed the stock got um got better and better and more stable but some of the impossible stocks i missed them i liked some of the color shifts that you got um i, I liked uh, some of the the instability of the film but yep there, there, there we go there we go yeah that was a uh, you know, the, when the Impossible Project showed up, it was really, it was really exciting yeah, to yeah. know that um, because, because when they, did, <clears throat> excuse me, when they did that, uh, th immediately there were 
people who were new to photography who were interested again mm. because even only that kind of couple of year gap where you could where you where you weren't able to buy any kind of polaroid uh that was new um impossible project showed up and they were you know they were doing something it was the same but different uh, mm. and honestly it was a horrible film <laughs> and <laughs> You know, you had to you had to figure out how to make it work for you. Definitely. Um, so, um, and you know, and it just didn't last. If you liked anything that you got, you kind of had to scan it uh, because mm -hmm. a couple of months later, it wasn't going to be the same. Yeah, especially well, uh, like a couple of days later, it wasn't going to be the same. I found that it, particularly the black and white film that would you could get some really lovely images, and then they would kind of go to that kind of rusty brown. They, you know, but. Yeah. Quite often, sometimes I'd shoot an image and I thought, I wish I had a scanner with me now because I'd like to just stop it right here. Um, yeah. But but I've got I've developed habits from Impossible Days that I still use today. You know, with the shielding the film. Um, yeah. That's a shield it didn't use straight away. Well, um, Polaroid now you don't really need to, but I always do. I always like I've got this thing. I always put the the black um, black tongue, <laughs> the black shield in, shield it, and put it away. I don't know why it's just kind of ingrained in me. Um, yeah. Do you have your camera? Do you have your camera to hand? You said you had some cameras to uh, to show us. Have you got the one you used on your your body of work? Um, an enduring grace yeah. that the Russia work. So that body of work and a few of the other, I don't call them bodies of work. I, I, the the ones that are much smaller, I call, I refer to them as more as collections. Okay. Um, because they don't necessarily have kind of, not not that they don't have any intention behind them, but mm -hmm. maybe less intention. Um, uh, so they, those were all photographed with this camera. Wow. Uh, especially in Enduring Gaze, and Enduring Grace was taken with this camera and this lens. Mm. So this is a Graflex XL camera. Um, it became the uh, modular camera that was born out of like crown graphics and speed graphic four by five cameras. Um, you know, uh, Ouija made them famous. Uh, you know, they were uh, press cameras that uh, photojournalists were using that, but they shot four by five film. Mm. So in the 60s, the Graflex Corporation came out with this camera. So the backs, the backs were interchangeable, the body was interchangeable, the backs were interchangeable, the lenses, the grip, there were different viewfinders that you could get. Um, this one's a range finder. Um, so you have to kind of deal with, you have to get used to using that if you're not used to using a range finder. Um, this uses a 58 millimeter rodent stock lens that is, um, the only one that I really use on this camera, even though I do have a few other lenses for it. Um, and when I use this one with black and white film, I use the red filter. Um, and I, because of the red filter and because of the speed of the film, almost always I'm shooting wide open. So, mm. uh, which I like to do because it'll get me a shutter speed that's reasonable mm. and it will, uh, in terms of kind of forcing perspective a little bit, you know, if I have something predominant in the foreground, that will be 
you know, much more out of focus because when you shoot wide, you get a lot more depth of field. But with this camera, even shooting wide, mm -hmm. wide open, if you have something in the foreground, it's going to be out of focus. So you get a little, lot more depth to the photograph, um, which I feel kind of really adds, adds a Definitely. lot to it. I love wide angle. I, I love yeah. wide angle uh, photography. I love wide angle cinematography. <laughs> I was watching um, No Country for Old Men just the other day again, you know, the mm -hmm. Coen Brother films, which I love the Coen Brothers, but they shoot a lot of wide, wide angles. Mm -hmm. I love them. Yeah, it's a beautiful camera, that Michael. Yeah. Yeah, for some of our listeners that are less uh, aware of, of these cameras, I mean, you, you spoke there about a, a 58 millimeter lens, but that, that, that's mm. a wide lens. Of course, you know, uh, li listeners who are more uh, acclimatized to 35 mil film, yeah, what uh, uh, are not necessarily going to think of a fifty-eight mil lens as a wide angle. And what's oh, right. just just for just for a point, a couple of points of reference. Um, you know, what what size are, are the images that you're shooting, and and what uh, uh, equivalent uh, uh, focal length of your, or, or particularly perhaps an angle of view that that lens provides on that camera? Oh, sure. Uh, yeah, easily. So because I'm shooting with a Polaroid back on this camera, it's shooting the Polaroid full frame. Whereas if other Polaroid backs on different types of cameras, like if you were using Hasselblad, it would be a cropped image. It would be a six by six image, but the but the film itself has, uh, I don't know what it is in centimeters, but in, in, uh, in inches, it's, what is it? It's three and a quarter by four and a quarter inches. So it's a little smaller than four by five film but uh, the negative is that big and the print is that big. And when you shoot full frame with this camera and that lens, it's probably close to a 20 millimeter equivalent. Yeah, yeah. I, I would have guessed somewhere around there, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. so, and honestly, and, and I can show you this camera too because this takes it one step further. Um, I started using this camera, it's a Brooks Verawide camera. Um, it uses the same type of system for attaching the backs mm. to it. Um, so what I was initially doing is I would take just the body and the lens, which is, uh, you can, this one you can't change the lens, but this is a 47 millimeter lens. Mm. So it's even wider. Really so I don't wide know, then, yeah. 18 millimeters or something like that. Mm. Um, and I, I really like it and I started carrying it more often uh, with later bodies of work because of, because of its size, it's smaller. And it uses, because it uses the same Polaroid back, at first I would just take the body and the lens and mm -hmm. put it in a lens wrap and throw it in my bag and it didn't take up that much space um, because space is always at a premium because I'm carrying the Polaroid film, I need to carry yeah. so much of that yeah. and all of the other cameras that I shouldn't be carrying with me as well. But mm. um, And this one, and the Brooks, I use a, a yellow filter on because uh, whereas the the 58 millimeter is an f5.6 this is an f8 so to get a reasonable shutter speed with the film that I'm using with this camera um, I can't have that much light blocked out by the filters so I, I originally I was always using still using a red filter with it but then mm -hmm. I would I was getting like one eighth one quarter second shutter speeds and i generally hand hold almost everything that i do on these for for okay. all of this work so yeah. i switched to a, a yellow filter which still works quite well with it that way i can get a you know a faster shutter speed out of it yeah 
because you only lose one stop with that rather than three stops with the red one or something. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, and you mentioned no, no. also, you mentioned, uh, you know, film, like filmmaking. Um, mm. uh, and I just wanted to, to, to mention that there are a couple of film directors that I think really inform what it is that I'm doing. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them um, was, uh, or, or probably I, I would say predominantly, uh, it would be Terry Gilliam of all people. Okay, this, interesting. Direct yeah, from, yeah. of course, Monty Python, but okay. he was the sole American in the group. Um, but he and he he and Terry Jones started directing the Monty Python films early on, and then of course he went mm -hmm. out on his own and directed other films. And if you watch any of his work, um, I mean, Brazil, for example, is a really great. Uh, film to to see of his going in to understand how he was using wide angle lenses mm. and really moving in on people and you know, doing all of the things that other people weren't doing and maybe shouldn't have been doing but um, he he really developed his own visual voice by by shooting like that and um, I was always really kind of drawn to that that type of look so I, I developed it i'm obviously not shooting people with it that way but um that's where the kind of wide angle uh so you, wide angle you aesthetic like, yeah you, you may like then uh some of the the cine cinematography in in a, a relatively recent film called knives out um which is uh it it was made just just a couple of years ago i can't remember which it's on one of the streaming services maybe amazon or netflix or something like that and it uh, uh and it's a, a good old-fashioned agatha christie style murder mystery but a lot of the uh, a lot of the the people shots are, are, are shot with very wide lenses and of course mm -hmm. very, very close up to get to you know to, to, to get them to fill the frame so uh check, check that one out that might you you, you might okay. might like that that sounds great i'm into it send me the link <laughs> and I'll have to, I'll have to watch uh, Brazil, um, so I'll put that one on, onto onto my list. Um, yeah, brilliant. I mean, any of his any of his films really are you'll see you'll you'll see what I'm talking about. If, see, I will if definitely, but and I can definitely see how the cameras you were using uh, in in Russia would um, would intrigue people and draw people people in because they're like the beautiful looking cameras. Um, mm -hmm. Just a quick question: well, when you go each trip that you took. Um, how many pa packs of film would you take for, say, the two weeks you were out there, Michael? Just out of curiosity. Well, yeah, it I kind of would allot myself uh, so many, mm. so many frames per day, and mm -hmm. that would boil down to how many packs that I would okay. uh, carry with me. So I think initially the idea is that I would shoot three packs a day. Okay. So I so if I made thirty, if I made thirty successful photographs, whether they were good or not, would remain to be seen. But if I could make thirty in a day, yeah, that was huge for me. Okay. Uh, but there would be days where I would shoot, you know, I would shoot two sheets of film on one pack, and that was be it. Mm. Um, one would be good, and one would not be, or none would be good <laughs> for that matter. You know, again, the failure failure rate is high, and okay. Now when I go, I have less film, but I take more of it with me. So um, mm -hmm. I was not recently, not recently, 
2019, beginning of 2019, mm -hmm. I was on a trip to uh, Australia. One was in Australia and one was in New Zealand. And I was working there and I took the cameras with me and I was working on a different body of work. And, you know, I do, I would just kind of, it was kind of a crapshoot. I, I think I took maybe five packs of film on each four, yeah. or four, four or five. And um, I think it was the trip in Australia, only one pack worked at all. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so that was, it was a drag, but mm. <laughs> I still got some images that I liked. Yeah. Um, the trip to New Zealand went a little bit better, but, uh, but again, I kind of, I, I, at that point I was literally taking a, a major portion of the stash of film that I have left. Um, mm -hmm. and I don't know how much I have now. Maybe if I have 20 packs, I'd be surprised. Mm -hmm. So, uh, like you said, kind of treating it like gold yeah. and being very, very selective as to what mm -hmm. I use it. And, and will you, would you like to return to, to Russia? I've never been, I'd love to go. Um, I think I have the, I have the same kind of visions of it that you had had as a child. And, and then you read characters like Rasputin and you think, oh, I really want to go to, to Russia and uh, see all the, like you say, all the brilliant um, buildings and learn about the culture. But it's so big, isn't it? It's such a huge... Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing is, I, I mean, I, the, all of the trips that I went there and, and honestly, the surrounding question, the surrounding countries, yeah. and the reason I went there, went to the surrounding countries for that body of work is because um, when, because they were part of the USSR yeah. during, you know, like I said, during my early days of fascination with the USSR, um, places like Belarus and Ukraine and Estonia, those were all part of, uh, part of it. So um they received a gigantic influence um in what you will find there um mm -hmm. you know in the time frame of all of history it was a very short period of time but it, within a gen you know a couple of generations there were there was significant changes that were made uh to the cultures of those other countries that was yeah, uh, one of the things that that um opened my eyes to that actually um it is a one of my favorite photo books that i i have uh which is simply called soviet bus stops oh. uh, and uh it is uh uh by and i can't remember the name i'll, I'll go get the book in a minute but the the, the 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 photographer had a particular fascination uh with with this with soviet era architecture um and he had discovered by accident at first uh, that whilst architecture was very strictly controlled uh, at the federal level or the equivalent of the federal level uh, mm -hmm. it joined the Soviet era there was one yeah you know, when you got down to a certain size of building um, uh, that uh, or public structure uh, it was allowed to be a local decision on the architecture and the aesthetic and the design uh, and he he hit upon this, this amazing project to to travel, you know, it's always the the length and breadth of of the former Soviet Union to to photograph bus stops and and to celebrate the local architecture of all the different countries and regions that had been part of the Soviet Union. So, That's uh, great. That's a really interesting point too about the, like you said the the, uh, the governmental 
I don't know, overreach that was <laughs> that was uh, probably going on with all of the larger federal buildings and you know administrative buildings, but then they could care less about a bus stop, right? So yeah, uh, you're going to get more of the local flavor in a, in something like that. Mm. yeah see, see next time you go check out the bus stops and then that's it you'll be hooked you won't you won't be able to see anything you won't be able to unsee the bus stops <laughs> right exactly <laughs> yeah i would like to go back it's been a while since i've been um mm. like i said this i consider that body of work finished for now um mm. and i don't i don't see shooting if i went back and started you know making photographs uh, it would probably be like kind of a Mark II version of of mm -hmm. an enduring race, um, or something entirely different. You know, mm -hmm. maybe I would, you know, maybe I would gravitate to something like bus stops or something a little bit more specific <laughs> uh, on, a, on a future visit. Um, and I would like to go back, and especially uh, St. Petersburg. I really loved it there. I mean, that was definitely kind of the the cultural hub of yeah. Russia. Yeah. So I always kind of equate um, Moscow with a place like Los Angeles and um, St. Petersburg is a place like San Francisco. Okay. Interesting. Okay. You know, um, <laughs> Moscow is a vast, you know, a vast area of land that just goes, seems to go on forever, much like Los Angeles, you know, it's, <laughs> You know, it's low and wide, and then you go someplace like San Francisco, or uh, compare that to St. Petersburg, a place that's much more condensed, mm. and you can find a lot more interest in a smaller mm. amount of space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's it's interesting. I mean, I haven't been to San Francisco for twenty years, but um, uh, yeah, I joined a dot, the first dot com boom. I used to work in the Valley a bit in Silicon Valley, and mm. um, uh, you know, made several trips to San Francisco, and I always it always felt like a manageable size uh, and of uh, i've been to a few places in the usa over uh, over the last 30 years or so um mm. and san francisco always felt one of the most european in its in its styling mm. you know mm -hmm. uh, even compared to you know sort of downtown manhattan with all of the dutch influence and architecture it always felt like san francisco had a, bit, a much more sort of european city feel to yeah. it yeah. right um, yeah but i can see what you mean about it but yeah what the difference between LA and San Francisco is, is yes, but Moscow and, and St. Petersburg. Yeah, I mean, and honestly, St. Petersburg was, it was modeled after uh, Italian and French and Dutch uh, cities and mm. architecture. Mm. So, you know, it was, it was basically designed and built by Peter the Great. And he was, he was, uh, he was informed by uh, the, the architecture and the culture in, in places like that. So that carried over into what we see as St. Petersburg mm -hmm. today. Yeah, interesting stuff. Now, There's Lisa, a lot more to it. It's very small. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we we set ourselves out at the top of this conversation to talk about several pe several pieces collections uh, of yours as well as you know methods for travel and cameras and stuff like that and we've had a real i i really enjoyed this conversation we've had a big deep dive um i suspect claire we've covered maybe just step one on our on our list of we, things um we were going to talk about your other co another collection um vignettes which was um kind of your street scenes which you you want to talk us about that how that came about um, and you shot them on a, a toy camera yeah yeah 
I shot those all with a Holga toy camera. Uh, I love a Holga. I love a Holga too. Yeah. <laughs> so I started using Holgas in 19... I don't remember now. 1995, maybe? Okay. And um, they, they weren't so popular. Mm -hmm. They were even more of a niche kind of camera. Mm -hmm. They're far more popular now. But um, I really like with using Polaroid and, and Graflex mm -hmm. cameras. I liked, I liked what I was getting. I liked that very kind of surreal, dreamy quality that I was getting from it. And I realized, you know, later that they were basically modeled after the Diana toy camera. Which I love. And um, mm -hmm. I had one of those at one point, but it kind of fell, fell apart. <laughs> I played some crazy. Funny, funny that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I mean, I, I I'm completely with you. I love I love Holger cameras. I love Diana cameras. I know if, if Graham was here now, our other co-host, he'd be going, no, no, he, he really doesn't like Diana cameras. But I I I got my first Holger camera. I think for me it was about two thousand and eight. I think it was. Mm -hmm. um, for me, I don't know how what got you into a Holger, but for me, I'd seen that a body of work by. Uh, is it Nancy Rexroth? Oh, yeah. She'd, she'd done this just beautiful, to me, body of work that she'd done all on a Holger camera. And um, it was just wonderfully surreal and dreamy, but the images were beautiful. And when I read that that was a Holger, I thought, oh, I have to have one of these these cameras. And they were affordable, um, and, and so that's how I got into into, into Holgers. So so you did your whole collection, vignette, in different countries, because I've seen you're on top of Paris and then you, you've been in London as well. So so yeah, so, so what was your thinking uh, around that collection, Michael? Well, it, it was basically, you know, sometimes a body of work will, will form out of, you know, your intention for, for creating it. You'll, you'll have an idea and you'll you know, you'll figure out what the tools are that you want to use mm. to make that idea a reality. Yeah. Uh, and then other times there will be a body of work that you will, you know, you'll look back over your years and you will realize that you've been doing things a certain way all of this time without really knowing it until you've had this moment of clarity in hindsight as to what it was that you've been doing all along. So. Mm -hmm. Vignette was born out of that idea, so it it came about out of the editing process more than uh, with any kind of intention. I mean, it it, it continues with intention, but it uh, but it wasn't born that way. Okay. So it was really the fact that I had just been, you know, I always since since the late '90s I had been carrying a holder with me anytime I traveled, anytime I went places. Um, but it was particularly at a, on a trip to Prague in 1998 that I came back and looking through the proof sheets is uh, I'm showing them to other people. I, uh, there was a really, you know, there was a kind of a moment of, you know, like an epiphany, like what I was doing, I was really loving and I felt it felt much more personal and much more, there was more of me in the photographs yeah, than, yeah. than anything else I was doing. Because also, I mean, this entire time, I'm also a commercial photographer. So when you're taking photographs for other people, you know, there are a lot of other people who's who are chiming in as to how the photograph is supposed to look, yeah. you know, or they have certain, you know, certain standards and 
policies as to what how the how an image is supposed to look and be um, in order to uh, get the point across for the client. Mm. So the, that was really when I was kind of taking photographs for myself uh, in a big way, and it's probably when I when I really kind of got into doing fine art uh, from the commercial work. So uh, that was an early early indicator of what it was that I was working on. But at the same time, I was making prints and just kind of setting them aside. And then I would make, you know, new photographs, go on other trips mm. and make photographs occasionally. And then at a certain point, I just kind of, um, I was scanning more often and then making my own prints mm. uh, digitally actually from that. Cause I uh, kind of worked out a way to do them outside of the dark room. Um, which was a trial by fire, but uh, I was able to make digital prints the way I was making gelatin silver prints initially, mm -hmm. um, and still be able to get what it, still get the point across that I was doing. Yeah. So during that time, I started scanning more and more of my older Holger, Holger negatives, and um, I I realized that they were kind of they were street scenes, but they had a specific look and they had a specific attitude yeah. that was that uh, that I was kind of capturing along the way without really knowing it. So through editing, you know, hundreds of rolls of film, uh, going through proof sheets, uh, I made a small selection of images and then just kind of continued doing it from there. And um, it's really the only other body of work that I consider to be kind of ongoing. Yeah, uh, so, right. the, so some of the earlier pictures, I think, I, I think I say that the collection started in 1990. I don't remember 97 or 98. Mm. Um, Might have been with one of the photographs from Prague, um, all the way to now. So they're, they're basically just slices of life of uh, their street photography, um, but they're done, you know. A, you know, with my own kind of point of view, um, as much as you can get out of a Holga. Because a lot of times when you use a Holga, you, you'll you realize that your images start to kind of look, they look like Holga images and they look like what other people have done with their Holgas. So it becomes harder and harder to set yourself apart in using a tool like that because you're very limited in what you can do with it. Uh, you have to get very creative in terms of, uh, the point of view or the perspective or the content that yeah. photographs are doing. So it's a much less serious body of work. Um, but because it's a Holga and because I had fun doing it to begin with, it's still a fun body of work to, to mm -hmm. work on. Um, and it's just, and I, I don't, I don't do anything differently. It's still just me carrying around a Holga on trips that I take, whether they're local or international. I just kind of keep one with me all the time. Do you use one aid? Do you ever use a whole? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have a couple. Um, I I got into it because I, I'd always fancied having a go with a Holger, uh, yeah. and then they stopped making them. Was, what four or five years ago? Maybe five. Mm -hmm. A bit more than more, bit more than that now. And I thought, ah, I always wanted to do that, and I never got around to it. So I bought three of them. Uh, uh, just in case. Um, uh, and I gave one to Graham um uh who i don't think he's ever used it ever um and uh but the two that i kept for me yeah that i've i've um, done plenty with those uh, over the years um uh, it's it was the camera that that helped me 
learn to to just let go as uh, michael as you said you know you don't have any choice right there's there's very few there's very few buttons and dials on a holger right you, you've got to be yeah you've got to be creative but i because my 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 entry into photography and part of what drives my enthusiasm for it is is that i see th i can see things i can imagine things but i have no motor skills to do drawing or painting or anything like that and so photography is is a way i can use a, a, a machine to capture the thing that i'm seeing uh mm -hmm. yeah it sort of helps me overcome my my lack of ability to draw or paint or sculpt or or, or anything like that mm. and and so uh, as a result i'm or, or, or and as part of my nature i was i've always been a bit of a control freak around it and and of course you know with a holding you can't do that you can't be a control freak with a holding. <laughs> so, so it's been a part of my um it's been a part of my psychological evolution over, over the course of my photography history uh you know, yeah. using the holger which i i, I it's um a, a year a year and a bit ago or uh, I, I slimmed down my my camera collection quite considerably um mm. and uh but i definitely kept the two holgers yeah <laughs> i i, I don't i don't I mean, it levels the play, playing field as it were so mm. Anybody can pick one up and just start shooting with it and get something interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think I'd ever fall out of love with the Holger. I do. I do think they're quite special. Um, you know, with your um, above Paris picture, um, mm -hmm. I like. Where were you? Where did you shoot that image from? Where were you? Were you I was. I was on top of the Arc de Triomphe. Ah, right. Okay, you were on uh, top. Wow. So on top of there, they have those little, uh, I don't know, telescopes, spotting scopes. Um, mm -hmm. And there was a, a, a kid who was fascinated with the Eiffel Tower from a distance. And it just, you know, it was one of those moments, as as it is with pretty much every photograph in the, in the collection, they, it's me just kind of looking over and seeing something going on and just mm -hmm. immediately reacting to it. Um, and that's the beauty of the holder too, is because you're not monkeying around with a bunch of dials or buttons, there, there aren't a lot of options. You just point the camera and press the button and you're, that's it. It's all you can do. So. Yeah, it's, it's great. Yeah. It's interesting. It's a, it's a great shot as well, because it, it, yeah. it uh, for, for me, the, the, the issue you get when you go traveling to these cities and you want to get is that the, the the best views are usually from the top of the famous monuments isn't it it's like well where do you go when you're in new york which uh, i i much prefer the top of the rock in new york to the top of the empire state building not be, not because i don't like the empire state building going up the empire state building is something that's really special but mm. you get a much better view from the top of the rock including of the empire state building right <laughs> that's right but you were saying earlier that the certain that certain looks and aesthetics carry through your work. So that kind of cinematicness and that kind of otherworldliness is is definitely within this kind of collection as well. And also what you were saying earlier about what points of views you choose to shoot your images, um, the the angles I think uh, are all are all interesting. So that, that intrigued me. I wondered where you were. <laughs> um, yeah. on that image um, and honestly I, I shoot both similarly yeah the graflex or brooks very white cameras um there's a lot of time especially with the brooks very white and with the holga like i don't even bother looking through the camera 
you know, when you you develop a rapport with a with a certain camera, mm -hmm. you already you kind of know what you're gonna get when you point it in a certain direction. So um, I'm often just kind of you know hunched over, holding holding cameras down at my knees or lower, or just setting them on the ground and kind of tipping them up and pushing the button without looking through, because I can already. I know them well enough to know yeah. what I'm going to get. So, you know, that kind of shooting from the hip style, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it also, you know, it, like, I, like I said, it, it lends itself to how I'm already yeah. creating yeah. images anyway. And it, everything is very kind of, you know, loose, as it were. So mm -hmm. uh, it, it, it just works for me. <laughs> and it does for other people, too. I mean, I see other people doing the same thing. And, it, mm. and I, you know... There's some, you get some really nice surprises at the end as well. Mm. Yeah. You know, I don't think I've ever tried that sort of shooting. I think you'd be quite good at it. Yeah, I'm going to try it, Michael. <laughs> Honestly, that, that's that's uh, that's kind of inspired me. <laughs> thinking I, I expect to see some results very soon. Okay, you, you will. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, um, it'll make it make the beaches of uh, of Anglesey look e even more special. Yeah, no, but I'll be intrigued to, to to see what to see what see what comes out. Yeah, I've never done that. Never sort of like you know not looked through them. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I I'm familiar with your work too, and it it would make sense. I mean, I think it, it it's a it's a way of shooting and a, a, mm. that makes sense with what it is that you already are working on. So yeah. So and, and it's good to meet a, a a fellow person that loves the loves toy cameras as well and the whole. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Um, Aid, shall we? And any any more images you want to you want to pick out from that collection, or are we going to go on to 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 sanctuary? I I I, I let's let's go to sanctuary. Yes, I just want to make sure that we're being respectful of Michael's time as well. So uh, yeah, we're we're not yet, we're not running over uh, outstaying our welcome in your in your day. <laughs> Well, it's probably my fault. I get long-winded on some of these. No, no, it's really, it's really interesting. It's lovely hearing, hearing your approach and and, and your process and, and everything that you do from the film you you choose and those wonderful cameras. With this collection of work, Sanctuary, please tell listeners because I was completely um, the thing that got me was how this how this collection came about and what kind of inspired this collection. Uh, you can tell this was sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a little bit honestly and I'll, and I'll and i'll be honest with you i'm actually probably going to rewrite the artist statement so oh. that uh uh it actually will lessen one part of mm. what it is that you're talking about anyway mm -hmm. I'll, I'll just get to it um <clears throat> so sanctuary is also created with po polaroid positive negative mm -hmm. film um in other than vignette that I work on, you know, sporadically and mm. casually, um, Sanctuary is the only body of work that I'm currently working on actively and doing it with what is left of the Polaroid positive negative film that I've got. Um, I'm probably using the Brooks Verawide more than the Graflex, although I'm still using both. Um, and it's a body of work that it's called Sanctuary because, again, when I was a child, everything goes back to when I was a child. Great, which is, yeah. Which is seek therapy. Um, 
I was a child and I fell in love with the movie Logan's Run. Mm. Um, Who did? It was. It was probably. It was. <laughs> it. It had a. It's odd. Odd that it did, because it has a very adult theme to it, mm. and. Um, but which I did not pick up on necessarily when I was a kid, but what I did pick up on was the was the theme of seeking a place like sanctuary. Yeah. So that was that was the idea. Um, rather than getting into the whole narrative of, of Logan's Run, basically the antagonist and or the, or the the two lead roles were seeking a place known as sanctuary. They were living in a modern utopia mm. and the outside world was basically kind of left behind. And um, this place called sanctuary was kind of a place of legend, um, mm. a place that people would run to, hence Logan's run. So they were on the, they found themselves on the run um, seeking this place called sanctuary, which they, you know, spoiler alert, they find. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, probably the the most telling scene in the movie is when they emerge from kind of an underground underground bunker type of situation into the outside world for the very first time. They walk into the sun setting directly in front of them, and they're blinded by something that they had never seen before. Mm. Um, and they're fascinated with it. They're intrigued by it. They're probably a little bit scared by it, but they feel like, you know, it's like they found home, mm. you know, they found their sanctuary. They found some place where they, where they feel safe and comfortable and at peace. Mm. So that became not just the name of the body of work, but the idea. So the thought was, what it is it? What is it that I consider to be my sanctuary? Yeah. And much like the the film, it was kind of the outside world. It was Mother Nature, um, mm. the landscape, and whereas I had been doing a lot of work that was architecture based and travel based, I wanted to kind of explore doing more sort of more traditional landscape work, but with the same kind of aesthetic that I did my other work with. Yeah. So that's that's how it came about. So there's a lot of images of you know there's trees and yeah. and yeah. typical landscape, but there's also I'm also seeking out kind of more unique landscapes as well. Um, so I'm going places like Trona Pinnacles in uh, California here in California, which is a very unique land uh, location. Gets used a lot for uh, uh, movie locations. Um, okay. Vasquez Rocks is another one that's used for movie locations here that I that I photographed for that mm -hmm. body of work. Um, the Trona Pinnacles was going to ask you about actually because that that image is just well, it's epic, isn't it? And it's just, <laughs> it's epic. It's it's just it's a magnificent image, and it's got all that kind of dreamy quality, and it's. I just love it and the contrast. And I was going to ask you where exactly that was, because it right. really just does look magnificent. Trona pinnacles, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it's literally kind of it's kind of in the middle of nowhere in California mm. in, the, in the desert. Um, it's not it's easy to get to, but problematic in that the road going in is very rough. 
Um, you don't have to have a four-wheel drive vehicle to get to it by any means, but it's a very bumpy, <laughs> it's a very bumpy ride. Um, uh, but it's worth, it's, you know, it's worth seeking out and visiting. Um, whether you're going to take photographs or not, it's very unique. Mm. And it's, um, it is, as you see it in my photograph, in, to a certain degree, in that it looks kind of like an, a bit of an alien landscape, yeah. you know? if not for the fact that there's clearly some dirt, dirt roads running through there. Um, I mean, it gets used as a landscape. I think films that are set in places like Mars or, you know, or made there. Uh, okay. You know, I was going, with, I was going more with the whole Sergio Leone aesthetic, but yeah, like, yeah. Well, there's that too. And, you know, I'm sure there are plenty of, you know, there's a lot of older Westerns that, mm. that were, that were done there. And, and, much the same as uh, Vasquez Rocks, which is another image that, mm. in, in that body of work, which honestly right now is a, is a fairly small uh, collection of images. However, um, the last several years, I've still been continuing to make photographs uh, of them. I just haven't finished working on the images. So the it'll probably double in size very soon. Mm. Um, uh, maybe larger. In, in fact, I'll probably make it much larger and then edit it back down again. Mm. It's just, just depending on how people uh, yeah. uh, react to certain photographs. But I, uh, that Fiona Pinnacles one really stood out to me, and, and the sky is just so dramatic, and 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 the wideness—it's just epic, isn't it? And the other one, um, forgive me, Michael, I don't know the title of it, but again, it's a low angle, and and then it's the tree zoom right up um right. into you know that's great as well um that's the redwood image yeah and that yeah. that actually that's actually again kind of going back to what i was talking mm -hmm. about in terms of um forming a collection out of uh, out of an, a past edit mm -hmm. uh, uh i ended up pulling for even though sanctuary became a new body of work i actually found images that I had taken in the past that, mm. that fit the collection quite well. So that, that photograph was made in 2000 and I think it was, yeah, it was 2000. Mm. And, um, at the time that was, that was the world's tallest redwood tree. Okay. Um, and you know, kind of how do you, how do you photograph the world's tallest redwood tree when you can't get back far enough to yeah. see it without it being obscured by all the other trees in the area. So the solution was to stand right at the base and just look straight up at it mm. and to kind of get that, um, you know, that epic uh, look to it. Um, and ironically, six months after I took that photograph, it was struck by lightning and became the third tallest redwood tree. Wow. So that was uh, the, one of those uh, fortuitous moments that you, you were there when you, when you were, that is a great image. Yeah, it does. That. It didn't. It doesn't look the same. <laughs> I think AIDS. Uh, are you looking at the collection there, AIDS? I yeah, I am. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's. Uh, yeah, it's. I think um, you 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 picked out some of the ones that I would uh, I would have picked out as mm. well. Uh, the 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 uh, the other one I that that took note and actually is a place I've been actually is um, Mono Lake in Nevada. <laughs> Uh, mm -hmm. the the alien the alien landscape of all of the uh, the I, I don't know the the rock deposits there I guess they're salt deposits that have, yeah or calcified rock in some way aren't they so right I think they're called uh, tufa t u f a oh, and, okay. yeah it's a it, 
I forget I, what exactly they're the they're made up of. I can't like, forget off the top of my head. Um, so I don't want to just guess, but um, but yeah, it's very unique and unique. And honestly, a lot of what you're seeing in Toronto Pinnacles is that same kind of how is it kind okay. of, uh, geographic for, formation. Yeah, a long, long, long time ago, I I, I did a, a bit of a tour around California um, and uh, and up through Nevada. So I did the drive from Vegas to Reno, uh, and and then yeah. over the over the border, over the mountains, and over the border back down to San Francisco. Just, there's just so much to see as you drive a lot, yeah, through there, through the Sonora Nevada, and through Death Valley, and and all this yeah, mm-hmm. crazy, crazy landscape. Yeah, there's definitely, there's a very diverse landscape in California alone. I mean, I've definitely traveled, traveled outside of California for this body of work, mm. but um, there are quite a lot that are, that are in California that you, if you don't already know, you would never identify them as a place like California. Yeah. So when you're busy um, traveling and taking all these amazing images with all your different collections, um, how do you, find time to to write Michael because you also <laughs> don't you <laughs> um well a lot of the, well a lot of this work is was done before I kind of taken on these newer yeah roles that, that I that I've been doing um uh like the writing and everything that I've been doing for uh um I'm sure you're referring to analog forever magazine and catalyst interviews uh, yeah and the traverse column at mm-hmm. 112 publishing um all three of which i you know i have to do a fair amount of writing for mm-hmm. uh, mostly for analog forever that one takes the most amount of time um but you know doing all of these doing all of these side projects you know they're essentially passion projects and they were you know like like you're doing this podcast and you're seeking out all these people who do different types of work mm-hmm. and you want to discuss it and you want to learn about it and mm-hmm. learn from it. Um, it's basically the same kind of thing that I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Um, just, you know, it's just not in a podcast format. Um, but I'm intrigued and fascinated by the work that other people do. So, uh, early on in, in the kind of, when I entered the quote unquote fine art realm of, mm-hmm. of photography, mm-hmm. uh, I was, you know, showing a lot of work and you get a lot of, you know, you get positive and negative reactions, mm-hmm. but you realize what a tight knit community of people yeah. that it is. And that was something that I wasn't getting in the commercial side of things because, you know, you're, there's more, there's a lot of competition. There's things that center around money more than anything else. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a lot of creativity, but it's often kind of, you know, kind of skewed by um, other people, uh, you know, yeah, in the industry yeah. that you're working with. Whereas the fine artwork, you know, you're able to portray your vision and your aesthetic, yeah, how you yeah. see fit. And when, you know, you're more of an artist. So now you're dealing with all these other artists and you're learning from them. Uh, like, I can't tell you enough about how, and of heartwarming that is and how fulfilling that is. Yeah. Um, yeah. I get as much out of providing that for people as I get out of doing my own work now. Mm. Um, so that's become just a, 
you know, it's become a different avenue that I'm going down. So it's more about writing and curation and reaching out to the community mm, uh, okay. and forming bonds to, with, with these people. You know, you become friends with, with, with people that you didn't know over artwork. And yeah. I mean, there's wonderful experiences, you well know. Yeah. And yeah that's definitely something that is, is right at the heart of why I love to do podcasting. Uh, it's just just the people that you get a chance to meet and, and right. to, to talk with and sometimes yeah make art with right yeah and that's and that's the thing it's a collaboration too right Some, sometimes you'll you'll actually go in on a body of work or start to make a body of work with another person you know whether they're another photographer or maybe they're a painter or a poet yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, or a writer for that matter so um that collaborative aspect uh, it kind of it goes across all all segments of the art community, uh, and and uh, you know it it form it forms that community and it strengthens that community like nothing else. So being able to to do that for Analog Forever and Catalyst uh, and One Twelve Publishing, it, it just uh, it keeps me. It keeps me in on the process, right? It keeps me yeah, yeah. motivated. It keeps me creative in a different way. Yeah, um, yeah. And while I never really thought of myself as a writer, um, again, going back to when I was a kid, uh, I always thought that photography was a wonderful thing. But all of the stuff that you have to use in photography, whether it's digital film, it's the cameras and the lenses and all the the bits and pieces that go with it, um, the lighting gear, um, like there's there's a lot of equipment. There's a lot of things that you need to use in order to make it happen. And I always admired writers because you can literally show up with a pad of paper and a pencil and get your job done. And I thought, wow, how great would it be to not have to have all that other stuff <laughs> to, make, to make what it is that you want to do. So now I kind of get to do that, um, even though I, I mean, honestly, I, I have no formal training as a writer. I really write the way I speak for the most part and then yeah. edit it yeah. so that it's coherent. <laughs> but um, uh, it's been a great learning process as well. And, you know, I, I, I look back at some of the earlier articles that I did and I feel a little bit embarrassed by them. Um, other people don't. You know, everybody's always very nice about it, um, but uh, you know, you always find need for improvement with anything that you do, mm -hmm. right? Anything creative. So, it's like that with, with your photos. It's like um, I have. Uh, I've I always stayed on Flickr. I know some people moved off Flickr, and people have opinions about it. But I stayed on and. I've still got um, photos that I have got on there that I've kept up from, I don't know, 2000 and yeah, probably like 2007 or eight, because I like to see what I was taking in that kind of uh, journey. Um, but you can say, can't you, you can look at sometimes a photograph and you think, oh, if I was to do it now, I might do this differently, but you know, but I don't know where you get your, you get your tart, you know, your time have you ever done any writing aid well, that's, that's <laughs> uh, i've done a lot of writing um yeah. not in the in the sense that we're talking about here um mm. but in in my professional work which is you know is nothing to do with photography uh, mm. 
is 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 very corporate oriented mm. um and uh, you know i've written any number of reports and business cases and papers uh, and things like that it's one of one of the reasons that my my method of communication on the internet is is usually through audio <laughs> uh, because i do it uh, you know a lot of writing that mm-hmm. I, uh, that is less fun uh, and so mm-hmm. you know for me writing isn't fun really because there's too much of writing that i have to do that is is mm-hmm. not not fun um but you know it's it's uh it's it, it, yeah the, the, the talking now talking i'm i can do i, I yeah so, <laughs> you know, and i find and i find podcasting a mass a, a a very good medium because of course nobody talks back so um yeah i can talk as long as i like <laughs> I, I like i like the internet as a one-way system you know <laughs> right <laughs> uh but you're right I like writing is extremely difficult it yeah, is yeah. it is um, anybody who's ever had to string more than one sentence together knows that that's true. Yeah. Uh, and when it's more formal like that, it, it, it does, I, you know, I'm sure there's probably plenty of people who write very formally that really enjoy the process. But if I have to do that and it becomes less enjoyable to me, I'm just not going to do it. And I, and I think that that's where I find the struggle too, with some of this that I'm doing in terms of, uh, writing is I often feel like I need to be more formal in in writing, so I try to push myself in that direction. But the more I push myself in that direction, the less enjoyable it gets, mm-hmm. and then I think it suffers because of that. Yeah. So yeah. I'm trying to make it better, but I'm making it worse at the same time. Yeah, it's a tricky balance, that isn't it? You know, you you you, it, you if you stray away or trying to force the voice, the, you you right. end up you, you end up making it harder uh, uh, to, to both write and then harder to read as well <laughs> right and, the, and honestly like the the only for catalyst interviews the only real writing that i do is just a short introduction um but i don't do it like a you know it's not a formal bio it's not even necessarily a bio at all of the person because i actually put their own bio into it but it's li- i literally kind of write them stream of consciousness i literally just sit down and i think what is it about this work or what is it, what is it about this person that brought me to their work in the first place? And how do I see it in the overall landscape of uh, fine art photography? Mm-hmm. And I'll just start to write. And sometimes there's a theme to it. Um, sometimes it's more specific about their aesthetic. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it's about none of those things. Mm-hmm. But I kind of find a way to bring the points together at the end uh to make it a point that it is something that i'm interested in finding out finding more about and uh and asking questions of this person Mm. so um when i do when i write that way it's a lot easier and it's usually shorter as well and truth be told uh especially online people are more apt to read something that's shorter rather than longer long form writing is great but um in, in kind of examining who's reading these articles and how much time they're spending on them um, through mm. through all of the kind of analytics that you can that you have at your disposal you realize that the longer articles people aren't right. people aren't really reading 
they're not clicking on them and they're not reading them. They're reading the short snippets more than anything else. Even if they're interested in the in in the artist, because I think it's yeah. a skill, isn't it, between your writing and then your kind of select the selection of the 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 artists that are shown. Um, I remember one that's springing to mind is um, the interview, the feature on um, is it Louis Louis Daisy? I really like oh. it. I really like his work, and I remember that that being there. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, and uh, it was lovely to see Stefano in Cat uh, Catalyst as well. You know, right. uh, yeah. Or, oh, actually, he was in. He was the last one that I did for Traverse. That's what. Oh, was it Traverse? I'm muddling. Yeah, yeah, great. Yeah. He did a lovely body of work. <laughs> it gets confusing with all the, yeah, with all the, the different things. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and that's what's interesting too, though, is that when I'm explore, when I'm trying to find out what other people are doing, mm. I, I can kind of plug them into one of the three, right? Yeah. You know, analog forever is is obviously the work has to be created through analog means. Yeah. <laughs> Traverse is all work created. It's creative work, creative photography from outside of the U.S. It's mm -hmm. basically I wanted to know what what people are in other countries are, are doing and mm. what they're working on and uh, where's the connection and where's that, mm. where's that through line that we can, we have mm -hmm. together, even though we grew up in different cultures. Um, and then there's catalyst interviews, which is basically just anybody, it's anybody, it's digital, yeah. it's, it's analog, it's, you know, it gives me the opportunity to include people that I can't include in the other places. So, mm. um, so, yeah, so there's work that I can look at at any time and kind of, you know, hopefully find a place. You know, I if I'm interested enough, I can find a place for it. I so. think that's really. I think it's really good that you've got multiple outlets that mm. allow you to to you know enjoy and explore different different types of, of medium. I think I think it makes me sad a little in a way that 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 sometimes the world of photography can be divided by some very strong opinions and, and feelings you know uh often of the, the that's not proper photography because x or because y you know and it's it's a it, but but it's nice it's it's good that yeah the i think i don't know i think maybe maybe as we record this in in the spring of uh, or at least in the northern hemisphere in the spring of 2021 maybe uh may, maybe the world is a little bit more relaxed now about the differences between film and digital and and, and things like that maybe you know it's maybe there's not so many flame wars on the internet as there used to be i don't know but <laughs> or maybe right. i just maybe i just got bored and don't read those channels anymore <laughs> well i don't know i mean that's a that's a very good point because it it's the same argument you know is the, the film or digital argument is essentially the same as oh i like canon or i like nikon like yeah. it, they're it's it's the same thing like those are cameras or those are photography like it, in while I show a lot, you know, I'll predominantly show analog or hybrid processes for analog forever, you know, it has to fit that mold to a certain degree. I'm more of the mind that I don't care how you make a photograph. I don't care what it is that you use. It doesn't even have to look like a photograph in the end for me to find interest in it. You know, it's a, it's an art form and it's wide reaching and uh, you know, it doesn't have to follow any kind of rules or guidelines mm -hmm. for it to be, to be valid. You know, like 
the, the whole argument of what makes a good photograph, that's going to be a question, you know, forever. Like it's never going to be answered. No, and that anybody. comes through actually. If you if you just look at as as I'm doing now, I have a browser window open at analogforevermagazine.com, mm. uh, and I just simply clicked on the menu option, all articles. And if you look at the header images, uh, what you've just said there, Michael, really comes through because mm. some of those I wouldn't consider not, not I wouldn't consider sorry I wouldn't recognise and immediately go, oh yeah, that's a photograph. You know, it's definitely. Right definitely art right <laughs> and it's definitely very artistic and, and and there's definitely a lot of craft that's gone into making the art uh, but but not all of it would i instantly you know jump to oh that's a photograph some of it i would but it's great to see such a diverse uh, body of work just a one page it actually just looking at these header images you know <laughs> what one page in front of me i can scroll down sorry i'll stop scrolling and focus on the conversation actually because well, well we should probably uh yeah. start start to to wrap up hit here a bit um uh just to uh well just to let you escape really um <laughs> and maybe our listeners as well um because uh, we've been talking for oh, probably a good hour and a half maybe maybe longer at this point so but a fantastic conversation fascinating and thank you ever so much for joining us um i mean you know we've talked about a number of of uh your collections we've talked about uh, a number of of your um your your channels for communicating across the art world mm. um uh you know so and uh, we'll definitely have links in the in the show notes i mean to just to to, to recap them for everybody uh, we can find your 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 own work uh, your own photography at michaelkirchhoff.com Mm -hmm. um, and yes. then the uh the, the you're writing at uh, analogforevermagazine.com uh catalystinterviews.com and uh 112publishing.com i think those were the main ones have i missed any out that's it uh oh, that's great there's certainly for everybody that's interested in this conversation <laughs> there's certainly a lot of follow-up yeah, follow-up work to be to, mm. to be uh taken advantage of <laughs> Yeah. Oddly, oddly, I hate talking about myself and then people start asking me questions and I can't stop talking. So uh, I apologize if I've been long winded or uh, oh, it's been the show too really, long. Really great. That, that kind yeah. of makes you a perfect podcast guest. So we're very pleased about that, aren't we, Claire? <laughs> you could have just started with hello and just let me keep going. <laughs> Well, listen, Michael, um, thank you very much once again for, for joining us to talk about your work. Uh, it's been a fascinating conversation. Um, uh, I, I, yeah, fascinating. And as I say, lots to dive into and I'll certainly be diving uh, into into all of that uh, myself. Any uh, any last last thoughts? Well, I guess Claire or Michael, any, any, any last thoughts or to, uh, any last pointers to leave us with? I, not from me i think i've said too much no <laughs> no not at all no I, I would just encourage listeners to um go and go and go online um at michaelkirchhoff.com and have a look at these different collections and have a look at the full the, all the images that belong in each of these collections that we've been discussing and also you'll be able to see um see us talking um on youtube um as well so and you can see some of these images as well um for yourself in, in our in our conversation 
yeah absolutely great well and and on that note i guess uh it's time to wrap up the show so we have been the sunny 16 podcast uh thank you to producer john who isn't with us for the conversation yeah. but has kindly volunteered to to do a lot of the, the editing and post-production mm -hmm. work in the background um, thank you john uh you can find us on the internet we are the sunny 16 podcast pretty much everywhere uh if if you're in any doubt start at sunny 16 pod Pod, what's our web address <laughs> sunny16podcast.com uh, start from there and 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 branch out into the into the uh, the media empire we've set up over the last few years uh we uh, will play you out now uh, with rachel's band rocker uh, whose album promises i should have kept you can find on amazon and itunes and i think spotify and bandcamp and i know that list changes every time i say it <clears throat> One day I'll get a proper list from Rachel. So uh, <laughs> it's been an honour and a privilege to talk with you all. Uh, I'll see you next week. Take care. Bye. -bye. Bye, -bye.